Recorded live at Toxin Tasting Studios, it's the Clerical Errors Podcast. The podcast that shows you what's behind the collar. Let's go. Welcome to the Clerical Errors Podcast. I'm Bullhagen. And I'm Berg. And welcome to the show. Uh, we start with our drink, right? We do. And uh, if you're listening at home, uh, grab a beverage. Join us on this lovely journey. And, uh, and let us know on Facebook what you're drinking. Uh-huh. We always like to know what... Uh, what you guys are partaking in, you know. And so today, I, I brought the beverage. We have uh, we have Coca Cola. We're kind of going classic here. Wow! Not just Coca Cola, though. Is this the Mexican Coca Cola? Mexican Coca Cola. Uh, now, there's something different about this, isn't there? Like they use real sh- like sugar cane. Right? Yeah. Nice. Yeah. For for the listener home, that was sugar cane. <laughs> it didn't oh. come out. Oh, didn't it? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> That's going in the post-it notes. <laughs> Yes, sugar cane. We got some great questions to answer, uh, and uh, we will answer those. One from Kyle, and one was anonymous. We'll get to those. And uh, a shout-out to – we're recording this the day before Mother's Day. I want to say happy Mother's Day to my mother. Uh, she says she watches our podcast on our TV. So thank you, <laughs> Mom, for watching us today. <laughs> All right, well, let's, let's, crack, <laughs> let's crack these things open, man. All right, let's do it. <laughs> And uh, we also got one for uh, Vicar, too. That's how nice we are. Oh, man. Yeah, I always feel that this is kind of like our ASMR portion of the show. <laughs> this is me opening a Coca-Cola. <laughs> it's a beautiful Next, sound. Vicar's going to open up a Coca-Cola. Very nice. So is this his treat for helping out? For the last episode, or? that's right. He uh, got a, a, a treat um, uh, for the by uh, we were giving him a coke there. So nice. He did a he did a you know it's really hard for me to say he did a good job because that's against my nature. <laughs> but I think it's against the vicarage policy too. You know. Yes, that is a, a, against the policy. Uh, you can't let them know they did a good job until after they leave. That's right. That's right. It goes to our head otherwise. Um, so Berg, how would you describe this? <laughs> Wow, it's yeah. This is. It feels a little lighter than taste. A lighter taste than. And it's not nearly as acidic as I don't know a regular like Mm -hmm. what what I used to drink as Coke. So this doesn't feel like it would take the rust off your toilet bowl. So you know. (laughs) Um, Yes, uh, maybe we'll uh, have to have Vicar try that sometime. Uh, rust off the toilet bowl is actually the title of one of his sermons once. (laughs) It's about baptism, I believe. Boy, don't don't waste that. <laughs> <laughs> but it's nice. I mean, this is kind of nostalgic. We've got the glass bottles. I mean, it's pretty rad, man. I remember as a child that uh, I used to go over to the grocery store and get the the glass bottle. I think it was twenty five cents for the glass bottle, and then and then uh, I would bring it back and still get ten cents back. I nice. Thought I, I thought I was almost stealing. <laughs> All right, so uh, Berg, what you preaching on tomorrow? Well. The title of this Sunday, and we've got confirmation this Sunday. Oh, cool. uh, And so the title of this Sunday is Jubilate, which means make a joyful shout to the Lord. What's kind of hilarious is that all the texts are not really all that joyful. <laughs> <laughs> um, the uh, Old Testament text uh, is really kind of dour. Um, mm-hmm. First Peter is, he talks about us being pilgrims and sojourners and warring against the lusts of the flesh. And Jesus is talking to his disciples in John, and he's like, 
you know, you guys are going to have sorrow in this world. And it's going to be like a pregnant lady who's having contractions. And so my sermon is really about how we're, how we can still have joy and how we can still rejoice, even though in this world we have many sorrows. And and it's it's one one thing I find interesting is is he says in a little while uh, you will not see me, you will see me no longer, but uh, it doesn't mean he's not there. Right. That, that's kind of the beauty of it in the sense that this is what I find uh, so wonderful about the the ascension is is the fact that you know we long for Jesus to be with us right right then and also you know many other denominations they long for Jesus to be with them now they might express in a different way um but uh you know my some people would say well I know Jesus is with me because I feel him in my heart or something like that but but how do we know Jesus is with us well before he died he said this is my uh, body Aye. given for you this cup is a new testament in my blood which is shed for you the forgiveness of sins it is or he said in Matthew 18 where two or three are gathered in my name there I am with them. That's more about an authority thing, not necessarily I feel in my heart in any kind of way. It's more of when you have the word of Jesus, you have Jesus. Jesus. And when you gather around that word, you have Jesus. So he's saying, you know, in a little while, you will no longer see me, but it, by no means is he no longer with us. And so think what a blessing that is to the church. You know, here we are in Iowa, 2,000 years later, gathering around Jesus. You know, if he had not ascended, he would still just be that one man and wherever. And, and who of us would be able to actually see him or know him? Right. That's one of the great, you know, wonderful comforts of what we call in Lutheranism the genus myostaticum, right? That the human nature has now taken on uh, divine qualities like being almighty and mm -hmm. being omniscient, right? That mm -hmm. a man now sits on the throne of God. And that this man now rules everywhere. So that Jesus, in his word, as he promised, can speak out of 100,000 pulpits at the same time. Mm -hmm. Where before, uh, people would travel many, many miles and go days without eating. Yeah. Um, the uh, paralytic couldn't get to Jesus, so they had to dig a hole in the roof. Mm -hmm. But now Jesus is here. Jesus is here where his word and his sacraments are. And that's a wonderful, wonderful comfort, especially when we're... In sorrow. Yeah, especially when we're not very happy or that it seems like the world is going against us or when our passions war against us, when we feel conflicted even in ourselves because we don't belong here. And, uh, and, and, and that, that passage ends with, with this. It says, uh, um, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. Well, that, that will be the, the jubilate part right. of it, right? Right. A joy that cannot be taken away. And think of all the, you know, I go to the nursing homes and I think of, you know, the people there, all the joys that have been taken away from them. Right. But they still have this one joy, Jesus. And they can also rejoice in the fact that this is just a little while. Yeah. Even this life is just a micron. It's a little while. Um, then that this, this life, even if it's 50 or 60, 70 or 80 years of suffering, is only a slight momentary, momentary affliction compared to the weight of eternal glory. I know. I think I might have a sip of my Coke for that. Here, let's... Uh, so, here we go. There we go. This is Bullhagen taking a sip of Coca-Cola. So refreshing. <laughs> I'm sorry. Is that where you were? You just really want to show off those new microphones. 
This sound good, Pete? <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, that's the way we roll, man. Uh, that brings us to our top twelve list. Peter, play the intro. Enough nonsense. It's time for Bullhagen's top twelve. So as I begin, uh, my top twelve list is this: the top twelve mis mispronunciations, which is kind of funny that I just mispronounced that word. <laughs> We're off to a great start. Yeah. The, the top 12 mispronunciations. This is going to go amazing. <laughs> mispronunciations of biblical names. Okay? <coughs> and, and just to show you that it's not always easy to pronounce names of the Bible correctly, I've uh, printed some off that I would like Vicar to read for us today. So This is going to be righteous. Right. So uh, let's, see, uh, let's see if this seminary... Uh, uh, education is paying off. So if you could please read those uh, top seven names for me, Vicar. <laughs> this looks like someone threw a Scrabble board against the wall. Okay. Uh, number one, do you want me to give the scripture reference too? Sure. All right. From uh, Isaiah chapter eight, we have Maher Shalahashbaz. Nice. Okay. Okay. Then we have, oh, um, <laughs> Kushan Rishathame from Judges chapter three. Uh, Zafnathpaneya. Okay. From Genesis 41. Uh-huh. Uh, Who is that, Vicar? Uh, oh, boy. Genesis 41. Zafnathpaneya. Uh, it's Joseph's name. Oh, when he's in, uh, when he's in Egypt? Yeah. Oh. Man. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, Vicar. Uh, then we got uh, Tilgath Paneser. From Chronicles, First uh, Chronicles five, uh, Barodak Baladan, Barodak Baladan, <laughs> from uh, Isaiah thirty nine, Zerubbabel, from Ezra three and five, and oh, I'm getting mad at my can't pronounce this, Mephibosheth, 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 from Second Samuel four. All right, good uh, work. That was that was awesome. So, Vicar, what I would like for you for to do is you have your phone. All right, I want you to do uh, uh, the third from the bottom there and see to try your uh, voice recognition app and see if if your pronunciation is well enough for Google to recognize it. <laughs> <laughs> and tell us what what you wind up with. It's kind of it's kind of mean asking an app to use an app. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, all right, so here we'll have a series take on my third from the bottom here. Siri, who is Barodak Baladan? <laughs> oh, okay, well, that, uh, let's see, that came up. Siri, who is Barodark Paladin and is uh, bringing up some Yu Gi Oh fan pages? Oh, <laughs> not quite scriptural references there, I'm afraid. Well, th that's a good way for you to practice those names. You do it until Siri can know what you're talking about. <laughs> All right. So, uh, with that nonsense out of the way. <laughs> those those were just the honorable mentions? <laughs> yes. Th those were just to uh, test Vicar. All right. So, I'm going to mispronounce it, and then you tell me, see if you can figure out what I'm saying. All right. All right. Number 12. Uh, Z. Pahania. Z. Pa um. Zephaniah. Zephaniah. Oh, okay. Yep. 
<laughs> All right, I think <laughs> I'm not real confident about my list today, by the way. Hey, you know, it's good. It, it keeps me humble. It remind it harkens me back to my vicar days. Well, and of course I did a much better see, job. See, we see younger pastors have it so easy now because in the lectionary they've got all those nice little um pronunciation guides for all the hard words. And, and you know what? That's one thing they actually don't teach you in seminary, do they? No, they don't. <laughs> so it's like you know, tongue twisters. So. Yeah, that, 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 I always find that interesting because everyone, oh, yeah, you know how to pronounce these names because you studied that in seminary. Well, did we? Mm, <laughs> nope. <laughs> All right. So so when you're coming up with a with a difficult name in a reading, do you guys, like, take a, I mean, obviously you take a look at the reading, but do you, like, really look at the name and, like, practice it a couple of times? Or do you just truck into it and you're like, oh, I've never actually said this out I, loud? I, I try to, but sometimes, you know, um, I remember I had a, a vicar. You probably I don't know if you've heard this story. Hopefully he's not listening. It was at a funeral, <laughs> and uh, and uh, the the text was from Ezekiel thirty seven, Valley of the Dry Bones, right? Right. And uh, this particular vicar uh, had trouble pronouncing the word prophesy, which appears several times. Right. And so the first time he got it wrong, and he knew it didn't sound right. And so it's coming up again. And you could just see him. He knows the word is coming up, <laughs> and he still doesn't know how to pronounce it. And so he'd get to it, and he'd pause, and, and then he'd say it wrong again. Oh, man. Prosify, prophesy. He just he had a mental block. And so I'm sitting there watching this mm, train wreck. Train, yeah. Ooh. And I'm uh, looking ahead, and I could see where it's coming, and everyone is just waiting. <laughs> Oh, that hurts. Oh, and man. it's at a funeral. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh. Yeah, I uh, whenever I come across a really hard name like uh, Athaliah, I went and practiced that for a long time actually. Like three or four times like it's this, it's this because I don't ever want to be in that position. <laughs> <laughs> the, the and the one time that it happened to me it was a few years ago uh, where uh I was doing a Bible study and and the Bible study had Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel. Right? Yep. And so uh, uh, we we have uh, we didn't have the vicar that day. He was out, so I had an elder help me with the distribution of communion. Okay. And and when it's all done, I finish what's in the common cup. Yep. Well, the elder left quite a bit in that common cup. Okay, yep. And, mm-hmm. and so I had Bible study where I had to say Zerubbabel. <laughs> <laughs> and it came out quite a bit different each time. Mm-hmm. Number 11. Nebuch Adnezer. Nebuchadnezzar. There you go. Nice. Number 10. Nico Demus. <laughs> Nicodemus. That's right. <laughs> Number 9. Jehos Haphat. <laughs> Jehoshaphat? That's right. <laughs> Number 8. This one's a rather ex- obscure, okay? This is Zich Aria being Jehoiada. What was that even? <laughs> I believe you've had a stroke. <laughs> Bear in mind, remember, to the person listening at home, this is uh, Mexican Coke we're drinking. Yes. I want to make that clear. All right, that is Zechariah Ben Jehoiada. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, okay. Nice. He was a he was a prophet that was stoned, wasn't he? You yeah, mentioned. he was he was killed in the temple by uh, 
Joram, right? Joram was uh, the king of Israel who actually Athaliah, his grandma, tried to kill. And as long as Jehoiada was alive, he was a good king. And then he died, buried with honor. Before his body was cold, King Joram went astray and Mm -hmm. ended up killing his protector's son. So fun times. Number seven. D on Esius, the R Eo Paget. <laughs> Dionysius the Aeropagite? <laughs> That's right. Nice. Yeah, that that was lame. Alright. You you did your best. Okay. Number six. Hames, son of Alpaheas. <laughs> Amos, son of Hames. I did a little Hames. Spanish here. James. <laughs> okay. Nice. Son of Alpheus. Alpheus, nice. Alpahaeus. Number five. Join the Bape teaser. <laughs> John the Baptizer. Number four. Benjamin. <laughs> Is that what you're going to do after this? You're going to go jamming? That's right. Nice. Benjamin. Number three. Mariam Madge Bellini. <laughs> That one's pretty good. Mary Magdalene. <laughs> Number two. Josip Hoff Arithmetic. <laughs> <laughs> um, what? Uh, Josip Hoff. Okay, yeah, Joseph of Arimathea. <laughs> That's right. Nice. Okay. All right, now this is a build-up to a huge one, okay? You okay. ready for this? I'm ready. I'm waiting. Hopefully, this won't let anybody down. This is number one. Here we go. Ready? And number one. Job. <laughs> I do like the book of occupations. <laughs> there you go. So, uh, I don't know if it's my strongest top 12, but it was kind of fun. Yeah. So, uh, that brings us to um, something that uh, we missed last time, and we're dying to hear it. All right. This, uh, we'll, we're, we're ready now for Berg's Bodacious Blasphemies. Peter, play the intro. Berg's Bodacious Blasphemies is the part of the show where Berg seeks to sell you ancient damned illusions by repackaging them for modern consumption. In short, Berg makes bad stuff sound bodacious. Um, so, this Bodacious Blasphemy was actually uh, suggested by your dad, I think. Right? Oh, wow. The Patrapassianism, right? Okay. Which is, of course, a very fancy Latin way of saying, you know, patri, meaning father, mm -hmm. and passio, meaning to suffer, right? So it's a teaching that said that God the Father became directly incarnate in Jesus, and that it was the Father who literally sacrificed himself on the cross. This is a subset of what we call modalism, that's mm -hmm. modalism, Patrick. <laughs> if you're looking for uh, a good video on the Trinity, uh, Lutheran Satire has a great one uh, done by Hans Feeney uh, by Patrick's. It's called Patrick's Bad Analogies. So look it up on YouTube. Maybe we'll uh, post it to the site too. Maybe if if we do a little pub for them, they could do a little pub for us. Yeah, you know, scratch. They can scratch our back if we scratch theirs. So And maybe they can have the, the audience that we have. I want to say yes, but I don't think they'd want to. <laughs> All right, so it's a form of modalism, which says that God is one person, but that he shows himself or reveals himself in three different modes or aspects. Okay, so let's begin. We hear many different phrases about fathers and sons. 
He's a regular chip off the old block. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. He's the spitting image of his dad. These phrases show the relationship between fathers and sons. While they're different people, they have the same characteristics. But what happens if you don't believe in the Trinity? That God is three persons in one divine being? What happens if you like to think of God as one person who just puts on different hats when we need him to? If so, Patrapassianism might be for you. Patrapassianism is the belief that the Father and the Son are not two persons, but one person. Why have a chip off the old block when you can say that the Father is the that the Son is the Father and the Father is the Son? Sure, you could believe that if you ripped verses like John 10:30, I and my Father are one out of context. Sure, you could believe that the Father was sacrificed on the cross if you ignored the very fact that the names Father and Son prove the personal distinction of the t between the two. Sure, you could believe that the Father was Jesus if you ignore Matthew 3:16 and 17 and Matthew 17:5 where Jesus is baptized by John and glorified in the transfiguration, and the Father speaks from heaven and says, This is my beloved Son, listen to him. You could believe that God was only one person if you discounted Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. There you have the Spirit speaking about the Lord, that is the Father, who is speaking to the Lord, that is the Son, about sitting at his right hand. We won't even talk about Isaiah 61.1 and Luke 4.18, where Christ is speaking about the anointing of the Holy Spirit, who is sent by the Father. If you blatantly ignore what the Bible teaches, you can join such luminaries like Praxius, Callistus, Sibelius, and the modern-day Swedenborgians, who believe that one God, that is the one person Jesus, is to be worshipped. This would also put you in line with oneness Pentecostalism, who also worship falsely worship one God, a singular divine spirit, who manifests himself in many ways, including his Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. This stands in sharp contrast to the doctrine of the three distinct and eternal persons posited by the Christian Church. Oneness believers baptize only in the name of Jesus Christ, rather than using the Trinitarian formula, which is obviously no baptism at all. Patripassianism thinks it defends God's unity against polytheism, the worship of many gods, but it doesn't. It destroys the biblical teaching that there is one divine being who exists eternally as three persons, Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So, read the Bible responsibly, and glory in the glorious teaching of the Holy Trinity, which is above our feeble reason. All right. I think uh, um, also you can read uh, the Athanasian Creed. That's a good, helpful one for that, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I'd say so. Um, you know, there are a lot of anti-Trinitarians around mm -hmm. today. Oneness Pentecostal, I think, is probably the biggest one. Mm -hmm. uh, that is really modalistic. Mm -hmm. They think that God is just one person. And uh, I think we fall into this, too, sometimes when we talk about God. You know, So how many times have you heard somebody say, well, there need to be three people in your marriage? Yeah. You know, the, wife, the, the husband, the wife, and God. Yeah, God, yeah. Right? Well, God isn't one person. Right. He's three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so um, sometimes we can even fall into that category of we talk about God as if he's one person rather than how he actually exists as three persons. Mm -hmm. And so I think this just teaches us that we need to be very careful when we're talking about God. And I think and people might, well, why is this so important? Well, it's so important because it takes the, the Trinity for the plan of salvation to actually work. Right. You know, if, if, if it's just the Father dying, then... 
I'm trying to play play this out in my head, but yeah, I mean, if there's only one person of the Trinity, then God really can't be love, mm-hmm. because love requires two, two people at yeah. least, right? It it requires a, a plurality of people, and that's the thing. Otherwise, God is just kind of lying to us. It's not really who He is. It's just like, oh, I'm wearing my father cap now, or I'm wearing my husband cap now, mm-hmm. or I'm wearing, you know, and that's, so then we really don't know who God is. He just puts on a mustache and, when and, he wants to. And people don't understand. I think part of it is too, people uh, have trouble with the, the mystery of it. You know, you know, one thing I teach my confirmation kids is when you think about the Trinity, it's, it's great theology, but horrible math. Yes. You know, the father is 100% God, the Son is 100% God, the Holy Spirit is 100% God. But how many gods are there? One. Right. And that's why, you know, when we talk about what God is, God is a spirit, God is almighty, God is eternal, God is omniscient, right? That's the whatness. But the howness of God exists, right? Mm -hmm. He exists as three persons. All right. That brings us, thank you, Berg, by the way, that brings us to now our... uh, What's next? Our ADD, ADHD Bible study. Our, our Bible study for the... the concentrationally impaired. <laughs> it's kind of funny. I can't concentrate enough to remember that. <laughs> Peter, play the intro. Do you have impaired concentration? Then this is for you. It's the Impaired Concentration Bible Study. One verse, one verse only. All right, Vicar, would you like to uh, uh, read for us our verse? You bet. So we are on uh, Obadiah 9. (laughs) Speaking of names, I'll probably get wrong here. And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Timon, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. Well, that's a cheery text. (laughs) So uh, what do we do with this, Berg? I mean, it shows God's judgment, Mm -hmm. right? That... uh, because of what Edom has done, because of what Esau has done, they will be punished. God uh, does not, God threatens to punish all those who break his commandments. Mm-hmm. And he threatens to punish those who persecute his people. Mm-hmm. You know, what you do to God's people, you do to him. And he will not hold you guiltless for that. And so, yeah, it's a terrible judgment on them, but it's glorious gospel for those who suffer for the faith. Right that there will be a reckoning. For the people of Esau, it was in this life. Yeah. But many of us will have to wait till the day of judgment when all hearts are uncovered. Um, and then believers will be glorified and exalted. And those who were mighty and powerful here who persecuted them will be put in their rightful place. Right. So. Okay. Very good. It, it's... I kind of struggle with it because it's starting to sound like the other verses. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> but, hey, we're, we're like a third of the way through the book, though. Hey, we're... We're moving. Yeah, we're making good time. All right. And now it's time for Confound the Clerics. Confound the Clerics. Peter, you got a couple of letters for us. Letters. Who's writes letters anymore? <laughs> you have something with the emails. Yes, we, we have a couple missives that were sent in to us by, uh, by pigeons. Yes. Would you please start with the epistle of Kyle, please? <laughs> what does Kyle share with us? Okay. Well, Kyle says, 
Hey guys, big fan of your podcast here. Interestingly enough, I'm a Reformed Baptist, but I'm very interested in Lutheran theology. I already subscribe to the Lutheran Law Gospel Distinction and the Five Solas. My question is in regards to the Lutheran view of baptism. In the Lutheran view, it seems the distinction between law and gospel is blurred in baptism. I understand that you would see gospel in baptism because God's promises are attached to it. But isn't baptism also a work that is performed apart from faith in the gospel alone? It would seem to follow your view that baptism would go against sola fide. Uh, sorry if this is a poor understanding of your doctrine or if it's even a misrepresentation. Trust that I'm truly trying to understand. I realize one of us has baptism totally wrong and realize it could very well be me. Thank you. All right. Well, thank you, Kyle, for your your honesty there um, and uh, for listening. We're, you know, I was telling the the other fellows here that uh, that's a kind of you're you're kind of one of the kind of person that we we wanted to do, do the podcast for. Right. You know, uh, the kind of person who really is is you know learning because you know as pastors we don't always get a chance to to deal with people from and talk with people from different traditions, and so uh, this is a kind of wonderful thing for us to be able to do. So it's very. Thank you very much, Kyle, for the question. Now, as you, you, you deal with baptism, I think the biggest question is this, and I think coming from a Reformed Baptist, you would you would say this, and I think this is the biggest difference. Would you say, Berg, at who's doing the work of baptism? Right. Okay? So, um, so for example, if you believe in infant baptism, one of the big ab- objections is the baby isn't doing anything, where we would say, exactly right. <laughs> Right. It is is a work of God coming to the child. Right. So there are uh, a couple places, and um, in uh, at least the Lutheran Confessions, which is a true exposition of what we teach, what we believe, teach, and confess. The the Book of Concord. So, um, and so, and if you want to follow along with this, uh, where you can go to bookofconcord.org, where you can look this up for free. Um, so in the large catechism. Uh, on the part of baptism, here is uh, paragraphs 10 and 12, which speak directly to your question about whose work this is. For to be baptized in the name of God is to be baptized not by men, but by God himself. Therefore, although it is performed by human hands, it is nevertheless truly God's own work. From this fact, everyone may himself readily infer that it is a higher work than any work performed by a man or a saint. For what work greater than the work of God can we do? But here the devil is busy to delude us with false appearances and lead us away from the work of God to our own works. For there is a much more splendid appearance when the Carthusian does many great and difficult works, and we all think much more of that which we do and merit ourselves. But scripture teaches thus, even though we collect in one mass the works of all the monks, however splendidly they may shine, they would not be as noble and good as if God should pick up a straw. Why? because the person is nobler and better. Here, then, we must not estimate the person according to the works, but the works according to the person, for whom they must derive their nobility. So there, Luther says that the work is not the work of man, even though man's hands are used, but baptism is the work of God. And, and, and I, think, uh, I think, especially when you think of how just mundane it is, you know, you know it's not like you're, you're doing something like some great and powerful work I mean, it's it's pretty simple. You, you bring a child, and you baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, it seem, might seem like that's when we say you should be baptized, that we're advocating that you do that work, and that work earns you salvation. But really, 
uh, it is God's work for that child. Right. And you can read about this, too, in the Apology of the Augsburg Confession, Article 24 of the Mass, paragraph 17 and 18, where it says that baptism is a work, not which we offer to God, but in which God baptizes us. That is, a minister in the place of God, and God here offers and presents the remission of sins, etc., according to the promise, Mark 16, 16, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. And so, how can God use our human hands while he's still doing the work? It's, it's like uh, like when, when we preach, right? Uh, when I preach the word of God, we're saying who is speaking. We God. say that God God speaks. is speaking, you right? Know? And and we're, we're, does that create faith in, in people? It creates and saints faith according to Christ's promise. So is it we who's doing the work of preaching and the listener uh, being strengthened in their faith? Or is it the work of God? It is the work of God. He uses our voice. Right. And you are under a command to preach. If you don't preach as a preacher, you're actually sinning. Right. You know? And so... Um, and so it, it kind of goes along with your point here that, um, you know, it yes, there are commands, right? There is a command to baptize, to baptize all nations. And there is also a command to preach. This does not blur the law and the gospel, though, because, in fact, God uses the law as a handmaiden to Christ because we are not perfectly renewed in this life. The new man still needs to be instructed, and the old Adam still needs to be crucified. I wish everyone would say, like the Ethiopian eunuch, what prevents me from being baptized? Mm -hmm. Because that is the cry of the new man. However, there are many, many people who would not baptize, who would reject what God has given. We even see this in monasticism, that the new man needs to be led, or he comes up with his own self-derived works. Mm -hmm. Things like monkish habits, and the like, which actually contradict the scriptures. And so your question not only deals with baptism, but it also deals with the, the position of the law in the life of the regenerate, of the Christian. And because we are not completely renewed, we still require the law in this life. Like, for example, the third commandment. Why did God set a hedge around the preaching of his word? Because our hearts are lazy, and they must be um, enjoined to do good works, right? Mm -hmm. It's the same thing with um, John the Baptist in the Gospel of Luke, right? Mm -hmm. Because he baptizes people, mm -hmm. right, for th their repentance, right? They come mm -hmm. to him, they confess their sins, he baptizes them for their repentance, and then they ask, what then shall we do? Does uh, does St. John say, you guys have it all wrong, you're under grace now. Right. No, no but it doesn't he then, actually yeah, it doesn't say that. He actually instructs them in their particular vocations in life. So he tells the soldiers, don't bully anybody and be content with your pay. Mm -hmm. Right? Same thing with Joseph. Joseph forgives his brothers. But what does he tell them when they go back to get their dad? Don't quarrel on the way. Did Joseph, who's probably one of one of the greatest uh examples of the gospel in the Old Testament, is he now suddenly a legalist by because he put them under the law? No. No. In fact, he is reminding them. He is fighting against their flesh. This is what we in Lutheranism call the third use of the law, which instructs the new man and also, at the same time, accuses and kills the old Adam. Those two things must always go together. And so, uh, if I'm not mistaken, um, in the Reformed Baptists, uh, in their writings uh, about baptism, they like to refer to it as an ordinance, don't they? Yeah, I mean, 
the thing is, is in some of our translations of Peeper, though, um, they translate ordnung okay. or order as ordinance. So, okay. for example, if you, you know, so I, un- unless we can actually like, I don't know, have a longer conversation on, you know, what that actually means, because, you know, Peeper actually uses the same language, so. So, so I, I guess uh, one way that we could see, getting back directly to your question, is uh, as Lutherans, we, we will tell and preach to our people to find hope in the fact that they are baptized. And it's not hope in the fact that you went and did baptism or hope that you made some sort of decision for Jesus in your baptism. It is a hope because in your baptism, God made a promise to you. He attaches promise to, to baptism. So, so you're finding made- hope. Not in what you did in baptism, but you're finding hope in what God has promised in and through baptism for the forgiveness of your sins and an everlasting life. And all of that is only only earned by, by God and only given by him. So it is not a law that we do so that we get eternal life. Another way we see this sometimes as Lutherans uh, is this, is uh, where people find, say, well, I was baptized, and then uh, they kind of don't feel the need later to, to continue to hear the word of God. And there are then misunderstanding baptism as a law because they're saying, okay, I did that. I don't need, I'm saved. I don't need to have that faith fed or nourished. To me, that's what they're doing. Wouldn't you say, Berg? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, once again, it's all about whose work is it? It's God's work, right? Mm-hmm. Now people will argue and say, well, human hands did it. Well, a hammer built, you know, a hammer is used to build a house or a nail gun, right? Mm-hmm. Um, do we say that a hammer built the house? No. No, we say that a carpenter built the house, right? When we, we sit down to eat, what do we do? We thank God for our food. We realize who gave us this food that we are to eat. Right. And it's the same way with children, right? Um, who makes babies? God, God makes does. babies, right? But in all these things, he is using instruments. He is using instruments to accomplish his will. And so this is a distinction that we use, that God is the efficient cause. He is the one who is doing this. We are the instrumental cause. He is, uh, we are the hammers. We are the saws. We are uh, the nail guns. And we do God's will, um, sometimes even in spite of ourselves. All right. So, Kyle, if you uh, uh, please, as you, after listening to this, if you have any more questions or comments about this, please let us know. Um, and uh, we'll we'll get back to this. It's a continuing, hopefully, a continuing conversation. And and thank you for uh, being a listener. And please help us get the word out about the podcast. Um, it's for for people like you that we do this thing. So um, thank you very much, Kyle. That brings us. We have another question. We have a couple of questions this week. Peter, would you like to read this question? Yeah, we got this email from anonymous. It says, um, "I was talking to an atheist friend of mine, and we got into talking about religion and the Bible." He said he had read parts of the Bible, and one of the things that made him put it down was reading about the plagues of Egypt. He said any kind of god that would kill his first, the firstborn son of an entire nation, having done nothing wrong, is not a god he wants to believe in. What do you, what do you say to a friend like okay. that? Okay. Well, one, one thing I would say is this. Um, is, uh, Berg, do you, do you believe in gravity? Not at all. You, you can, because probably when you tried to play I basketball, hate, I hate gravity. <laughs> I mean, I would love to fly like Superman, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, but just keeps you down. It yes, it like the vicar said, it just keeps me down. The reason why, why I say that is is uh, when you say I choose to not believe in a God that does those things. Okay, um, what you're doing is you're saying 
I am kind of get to pick and choose what God is supposed to be and look like and sound like and do. And part of faith is realizing that that uh, there is a will beyond yours who would do things actually different than you that you hold to. Otherwise, you're just making a God who just does and believes everything that you do, that just confirms everything you always thought, which is not really faith at all. You know, it's this is a fascinating view that seems to have really gained traction in the 20th century. You see it in novels like American Gods by Neil Gaiman and in Small Gods by Terry Pratchett, where they posit the, the view that a person's faith actually makes the God. So the more believers they have, the more strength they have. Mm-hmm. Okay? Um, but that's not how it works. God is not dependent. Even if no one believed in him, God would still be God. It's like uh, Paul says in Romans, let God be true and every man a liar. And I guess this gets us to our second point, is that this this friend of yours is actually putting himself in the judgment seat. He is acting as judge over God. And mm-hmm. that is what sinful man does. And we see this very clearly. What is the response to Jesus, who was perfect, who lived a life of obedience, who did no, who came to do nothing but good for sinful man? Right. The crucifixion. That is sinful man's response to God. Deicide. And, and one thing I think that's part of that question, too, is this. is it, He says it's hard, or she, he says it's hard to believe in a God that would do that. Or that, you know. And so part of it is he wants a God that is uh, more merciful, that he thinks what he, how he understands mercy. But wouldn't you say that God wouldn't be that mean? That's, yeah, I mean, that's what they're saying. The thing is, is that they obviously didn't read the other nine plagues where God, again and again, and we, you see that the plagues actually increase in intensity as time goes on. God is warning them. And the Egyptians had every opportunity to paint blood on the lintels and the doorposts. Mm-hmm. They had every opportunity. And as to say that they they had done nothing wrong, they had just held God's people in subjection for 250 years, mm-hmm. right? Um, they... Uh, uh, had oppressed God's people evilly and sorely, and uh, not 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 just that, but they had had ample warnings for repentance. And uh, it, it kind of brings back to I think, which is also a larger point in this, is is when you look at that Old Testament passage, you're not really going to understand it anyways if you don't understand Christ Jesus, our Lord, because. That, you know, when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, they were celebrating this very Passover meal. And uh, we talked about baptism. What did the Father say when Jesus was baptized? This is my beloved Son. Jesus, God is not doing uh, to the the Egyptians uh, anything less than what he did to his own Son for the forgiveness of our sins. He was a firstborn Son who was sacrificed for us. And there's also something gracious in the fact that it was a firstborn. It could have been everybody. Right. That even in his wrath, God is still merciful. And that everyone deserves death. I mean, I guess, you know, the thing to talk to your friend about, I mean, one way to get them around to this, you know, taking kind of a Romans 9 view is like, if you 
make a computer program, do you feel bad when you delete it if it's not working the way you want it to? No. no, of course not. Or if you are a pottery student and your pot doesn't turn out the way you want it to, do you have any qualms about breaking it? No. No. Well, the Bible says that God is the potter and we're the clay. He has every right to break us. He has every right to demolish us if we don't turn out to his purposes. And the thing is, is he doesn't. He doesn't. He has consigned all under sin so that he might have mercy on all. And, and uh, I guess uh, kind of rounding this out, when I get a question like this, I try and kind of look behind it too. And I think um, there's, in the question, there's actually a little bit of fear involved. Because um, because when someone asks a question, I can't believe God would be so mean to them or he would judge them in such a way, right? I think there, if, if you really look into it, that person is saying something about themselves. They're saying, you know, um, I, I don't, don't want, want to believe in a God me. like that because I know what I deserve. I know what I've done. And if that God exists, then I, who seemingly have may have done more things wrong than those people in Egypt, then uh, then I'm in, in trouble. And so what does that do? It gives us a per- perfect opportunity to say, well, just like he gave the Egyptians an opportunity, here's an opportunity for, for you to know forgiveness, to know the find the power of his grace. Because when we look at our sins uh, without Christ, we should be afraid. We should be driven to, to an answer, and we should be uh, in the sorrow over that sin to see that uh, uh, the, the hope and the peace of a Lord Jesus who died for those sins. Yeah, and don't, don't be afraid to talk to them about it. I mean, that is going to always be sinful man's response is to hide, to run from God, because mm-hmm. they don't want God. That's what Adam did in the garden, and that's what men and women do today. And, and so, but keep preaching to them, you know, the gospel. And I've talked to many people who, who, who were in that kind of setting, and what happens is, is uh, whenever they hear about God, it, it does become a frightening and scary thing that you kind of want. It's like nails on the chalkboard because it's an unresolved issue in your heart and mind, and you don't know what to do with it. Right. Um, and uh, in you know, one case, uh, I had someone say he had operal cancer. This is when I was first a pastor 20 years ago. And he said that the cancer that he got was the best thing that ever happened to him because, because it drove him to... To the Christian faith. To the Christian faith, where he had those answer questions answered. So um, thank you, Anonymous. Hopefully that answered your questions. If it didn't, uh, I know you're listening, so uh, please uh, uh, email back to us, and we will answer. Once again, we do this podcast for people just like you. So that brings us to a close of our podcast, except for one more thing. Sticky notes. Sticky notes. Remember this? We have... Coca-Cola. We're kind of going classic here. Wow. Not just Coca-Cola, though. Is this the Mexican Coca-Cola? Mexican Coca-Cola. Uh, now, there's something different about this, isn't there? Like, they use real sh- like sugar cane? Right? Yeah. Nice. Yeah. For, for the listener home, that was sugar cane. <laughs> it didn't oh. come out. Oh, didn't it? Sorry. <laughs> That's going in the post-it notes. <laughs> 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 this is the weirdest part. <laughs> What about this? So as I begin, uh, my top 12 list is this. The top 12 mis- mispronunciations, which is kind of a 
funny that I just mispronounced <laughs> that word. <laughs> We're off to a great start. Yeah. The, the top 12 mispronunciations. This is going to go amazing. <laughs> mispronunciations of biblical names. I've printed some off that I would like Vicar to read for us today. Maher Shalahashbaz, Kushan Rishathaim, Zafnath Panea, Tilgath Paneser, Barodak Baladan, Zerubbabel, Mephibosheth. So, Vicar, what I would like for you for to do is try your uh, voice recognition app and see if, if your pronunciation is well enough for Google to recognize it. That's kind of it's kind of mean asking an app to use an app. Siri, who is Barrow Dark Baladin. Uh, let's see, that came up. Siri, who is Barrow Dark Paladin and is uh, bringing up some Yu-Gi-Oh! fan pages. Oh. <laughs> Not quite scriptural references there, I'm afraid. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my. I need another sip of my Coke. Thank you for not saying anything. I didn't want to do a spit take all over my computer. <laughs> well, and how about this? So, so when you're coming up with a with a difficult name in a reading, really look at the name and like practice it a couple of times. Um, I remember I had a, a vicar. It was at a funeral. <laughs> the text was from Ezekiel 37, Valley of the Dry Bones, right? And uh, this particular vicar uh, had trouble pronouncing the word prophesy. And so the first time he got it wrong and he knew it didn't sound right, it's coming up again. And you could just see him. He knows the word is coming up. <laughs> and he still doesn't know how to pronounce it. And so he'd get to it and he'd pause and he'd... And then he'd say it wrong again. Oh, man. Prosify, prophesy. And so I'm sitting there watching this mm, train wreck. Train, yeah. Ooh. And, uh, and I could see where it's coming. And everyone is just waiting. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that hurts. Oh, And man. it's at a funeral. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> oh. Oh, really? Vicar, come, come on. Vicar. Baker, that's not how that's done. Oh. Well, thank you for listening. Have a, a, a great night. I'm Bullhagen. And I'm Berg. And uh, please uh, get a hold of us. Thank you for listening. Thank you for joining us. This podcast is available on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you enjoy the show, please support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash podcast. Money we receive is invested back into the podcast and the surplus donated to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. Questions, thoughts, concerns? You can contact us on Facebook at facebook.com slash podcast, on Twitter at clericalheirsp for podcasts, or email us at feedback at clericalheirs.org. There you can also find links to the things we talked about. Thanks for listening to Clerical Heirs. See you next time. And uh, please uh, get a hold of us. Thank you for listening. Did uh, the lawnmower just outside our door, can you hear that at all?